Good morning, church. It's great to see you, and uh, so glad you're here on this beautiful summer day. I was reading an article this past week uh, by a research firm that researches church stuff uh, all through North America, and they were telling us this week in their, in their article how much weather affects church attendance, and uh, both on the good side and the bad side. So the fact that you're here on a day like today, like you're like the real committed, uh, like, yeah, awesome. And what a great week. Thanks for showing that video, and uh, special thanks to everyone who's serving in camps in any capacity. Uh, why do we do that? Why would people give up time in the summer, and why would we go through all of this? Because you and I have 10 brand new brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why. And uh, it's great. Uh, lastly, before we sort of get rolling here, a uh, big week in the Gould household is my eldest son got engaged Friday night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it took him long enough. Anyway, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very different from when we were young, right? Like uh, we got married, Robert, you know, you're young bucks, right? Yeah, and now they're the average age, I think I read the last time I read anything, when well, was about 28 and a half years old, uh, and it could be creeping f further. So, uh, yeah, lots of things going on in the background in our home, but I uh, want to thank you so much uh, as a church for being here in this summer. Thank you for your responsiveness and your faithfulness in your giving, and uh, uh, we want to begin. So, uh, today we are, well, I'll just say this, in my hands... I hold a copy, a translation of the written Word of God. It is alive and it's active. As I consistently read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, and apply it, my mind will be transformed, my heart will be renewed, my life will be changed. And that is true for everyone in this room. So we're talking today about encountering God in the Scripture, in the Bible. And I sat there thinking, how in the world do I teach this to Christians who, those who have grown up in the church since they were, you know, knee-high to a, I don't know, whatever, knee-high to a grasshopper, that's pretty smooth. How, how do I bring this teaching about the, the Scripture in a way that, you know, has any kind of influence in our lives besides what you've heard probably some of you 500 times? Read your Bible. So I wrestled deeply. I tried to find some resources I had not yet read, and... Uh, I think the Lord may have a special word stored up for us, so uh, let's trust him for that, all right? Thank you for your prayer, Amy. I apply that. Oh, ah, we got Taryn and Steph here today. Taryn, uh, Nina's son, Taryn, and Stephanie. Steph were married on Monday night, so they are here in the house today. Yeah. Awesome. That's very, very cool. Uh, Wonderful to be able to be a part of that. I'm going to go to an incredibly um, 
a familiar passage for, for many people, not everyone in this room, but this is found in the Older Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and Psalm chapter 1. We're going to read three verses from it. So, remember, that these words are life. Blessed is the person, the one who does not walk in, this, in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or take or sit in the company of mockers. This is talking about the God-blessed life here. If you want a God-blessed life, it's not discovered in the footprints of ungodly people in our world. A lot of people in our world can show you a blessed life in certain things, perhaps financially, perhaps physically, in all kinds of ways, but they, you will not find the God-blessed life by walking in the council or in the footprints of ungodly people, nor is it found within the community of those who do not submit to God. They don't submit to him, and nor within the community of those who ridicule his ways. Is our culture just ripe with people who ridicule the word of God? It sure is. You will not find the God-blessed life among those people. If you align with their counsel, their direction, and their values, they will lead us far from God's purposes and his blessing. Make no mistake. And the problem with North American Christianity is that we have tied prosperity materially with God. And we look at others and their material wealth, and we're going, what's going on with me, God? What is going on with you? David felt those same, same teachings back in the Old Testament in another book in the Psalms where he said, I looked around and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, and I saw the righteous suffering, and my foot almost slipped. He said, I literally almost lost my faith over the issue until I went into the sanctuary. And I realized their end. And he could conclude how good God is to his people. When Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, life so much automatically, isn't it? Our natural reaction, we think, nice car, good job, lots of money, lots of friends, popularity perfect health. That's what we think of. I used to think that, and it, I struggled when I would read John 10 about that, because I would see sometimes our life. You grew up in a pastor's home, and, you know, in the prairies all those years ago, there wasn't a lot of material blessing. I watched all the kids in my classes have everything and not me. Until I discovered that when Jesus said, you will have life abundantly, life that he's talking about there is the eternal very life of God himself. It's called Zoe life. The very life of Christ by his spirit that comes up to take residency in someone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit of God brings this brand new life from above into our beings. And Jesus says... I have come that you might have life, that life, abundantly. 
You know, that life sometimes does result in incredible blessings all around us like other people, and many times it doesn't. But there is a future coming for everyone who has this life, and that life is eternity in the new heaven and the new earth with all unbelievable blessing, and you just can't imagine what's coming to us. And those who had in that very short blip of eternal or earthly life, they had it all now. We are going to enjoy everything that God has in store for all eternity. So friends, the God-blessed life is not found in the counsel of people in our world who reject God and don't know him and do, in fact, scoff at him. Here's where it's found, verse 2. But whose delight, you can circle that word, is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. You see, the God-blessed life is experienced by the person who delights in God's Word, who meditates on God's Word. We're going to talk about that. Day and night, there's a consistency, a rhythm, and a routine to this aspect of their lives. And there, there is a responsive desire in that type of person to know and to be saturated in and shaped by God's Word. That is where the God-blessed life is found because of what his word does in us and to us and through us. Verse 3, that person, who's that person? The God-blessed person who meditates on the word of God, who allows it to shape them, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. The person who delights in and meditates on and aligns with the Word of God is one who will experience life in God's kingdom spiritually, that is spiritually, and he lists four things here, stable. You're planted like a tree. He's going to contrast it. He goes on the rest of the verse saying, not so the wicked, they're like chaff. Anyone know what chaff is? How many people grew up in farming communities? Anyone? When combines go through a, uh, a field, they take and they, they go through this process and it saves the kernels and that chaff gets blown out the back of the combine. It's wasted straw. It's useless. Contrast chaff that is blown by the wind with a tree that's planted by a river. Stable, spiritually stable, spiritually fruitful, yields its fruit in its season. God works through you. You produce fruit, fruit of godly character, fruit of praise, fruit of other people's, you know, influencing other people, fruit of doing good works in the search. We could go on about all what that fruit is, but that's the type of person who delights in, meditates on, and aligns with God's word, experiences, experiences the blessing of life in God's kingdom. They're stable, they're fruitful. Here's the third thing, they're vital. They experience vitality. Their leaf doesn't wither. You and I, if we thought long enough, could experience an awful lot of people who wither spiritually. Where are they today? Chances are they've given up on absolutely leaning into, meditating on, being a part of and aligning their lives with the Word of God. 
Jesus talked about this in his parables, right? Some, some comes, you know, little persecution, little hard times, suffering, and they bail. There's no root there. Others get overwhelmed with pleasures and riches, and their lives get distracted, and they go. Like Demas, having loved this present world, he abandons Paul. And whatever they do prosper, their success, spiritual success. This is life in the kingdom he's describing. We can experience stability and fruitfulness and vitality and success in the kingdom of God because of the word of God. Part of some of the things I wanted to share this morning comes from a book that I found in my mom's library. I had heard about it. She talked to me about it, told me I needed to read it for a number of years. And it wasn't until she passed away and I inherited some of her books that I began to think about it. And I read it and picked it up and started reading it this past week or two. It was by a guy who was a professor at uh, Regent College in Vancouver, a prolific writer. His name is Eugene Peterson. And Eugene Peterson wrote a, it's called Eat This Book. You want to read a good book on this? You eat this book, Eugene Peterson. Here's what he said. The Holy Scripture is the source document, the authoritative font the work of the Spirit that is definitive in all true Christian spirituality. Now, I need you to stay with me for a few minutes, and then we're going to get intensely practical. But here in this part, I need you to lock in, okay? You with me? <clears throat> the Christian Scriptures are the primary text for Christian spirituality. That is, Christianity, living the way of Christ, is rooted in and shaped by the Word of God. Seems simple for some of us, but you wait. We're going to talk about something. These words of the Spirit are intended to get inside of us, to deal with our souls, to form a life that's congruent with the world that God's created, congruent with the salvation that He has enacted, congruent with the community that He's gathered together called the church. It's a different kind of writing, this book. It's different from reading a blog. It's different from reading a newspaper or a magazine, if you know what those are anymore. It's a different kind of writing. We're going to get into this in a second, and it requires a different kind of reading. We don't read it like a Twitter post. Spirit-sourced writing requires spirit-receptive reading. We don't read the Bible, and there's a big mistake many of us make because we're naturally so self-centered. We do not read the Bible in order to find out how to get God into our lives or to, to get Him to participate in our lives. No. We open His Word and find that He draws us into His reality. He pulls us into participation with Himself, and here's the key, on His terms. And many Christians, I think, use the word for their own means and on their own terms or for their own ends. We come to God as he draws us in on his terms. And we're drawn to read the scripture by God who reveals himself personally to us to form us into Jesus' image through the spirit and the word. Second Timothy, again, very familiar passage to many 
This is a, this is a passage of Scripture, and here, let's just read it together. Can you, we do that? Can we read it out loud all together? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the big idea in this passage is this, that Scripture is God-breathed. The source is from God. Peter tells us that no prophecy of Scripture came from a man's own will. The Holy Spirit came upon, worked through, and superintended through their personalities to make sure that they wrote the very words of God. So the source is God, His Spirit speaking through the prophets and apostles. And He did so to thoroughly complete, I love the older version, that that they might be complete or adequate, equipped for every good work. So there's two aspects to it. It, it, There's a sense of it completing or maturing or making us complete in Christ. And it equips us for service as we serve God. Now, how does it happen? That comes through teaching, through rebuking, through correcting, through training in righteousness. Where what Christians consider their needs wants and feelings are in alignment, that's a good thing. But where Christians' feelings, wants, and desires contradict the Scripture, they must submit to and surrender to God's Holy Scripture as authoritative and let it teach them, rebuke them, correct them, and train them. Now, here's the last part to stay with me, okay? There's a rival text, Eugene says. There is a rival text to God's Word as our primary text for life. I can see the wheels turning because as soon as he said that, I began to race and I start stopped and started to think of what it might be. Here's what he says. That rival text is the sovereign self. It's emerged in our culture and it's sweeping through the church. He says the text that seems to be most in favor on the landscape today that determines our life, what we believe, how we behave, our values, everything, that text that's in most favor on the landscape is the sovereign self. And he says that God, the ultimate authority, Father, Son, and Spirit, has been replaced by a new trinity, self, my needs, my wants, my feelings. He writes that this authoritative text that has replaced the three-person trinity is a hyper-individualized trinity. Again, my needs, my wants, my feelings. And this is being reinforced from the cradle to the classroom to the corporate boardroom. Most of our culture supports and promotes this perspective, actually, and it's gaining momentum in the church. Now, please hear what I'm not saying. And Peterson is not as well. He takes a few paragraphs to to explain this. He is not saying that our needs, wants, and feelings, they are important considerations in the forming of Christ's life in us. They are. 
You with me? They're important considerations in the forming of our life. But they are not the primary text in the formation of self. There's enormous interest out there in the soul these days. The revival of attention in Christian circles of spiritual theology, spiritual leadership, spiritual direction, all of this. But what's fascinating is often there's not a corresponding revival of interest in the scriptures. He says it's a matter of urgency that interest in our souls is matched by an interest in the scriptures and for the very same reason. They, that is the scriptures and our souls, are the primary fields of operation for the Holy Spirit to work. Interest in the soul that's divorced from interest in the scripture leaves us without a text. And so a false text will arise to shape our souls. And the wise follower of Jesus knows that the Spirit and the Word are central, not only to all soul work, but to the God-blessed life. Friends, the sovereign self, the authoritative self, is not the primary text for the follower of Jesus. Those needs, those wants, those feelings are important. They're part of us. God made us this way. But they are not the primary text to lead our lives. They are wonderful cars in the train of our life. They make a horrible engine. Because they can lead us in ways. So, in the scripture, Peterson you know, writes this whole book around this, but he, he captures a very striking metaphor to talk about what we're talking about today, to help Christians. And he says it's time we change the metaphor in the church. We can study the scripture and sit over it. We can study the scripture and be detached from it. So he says we need a different metaphor in the church, and he calls it this, eating the Bible. Remember, it's a metaphor. Don't start gnawing on the corners of your... The Bible gives this metaphor for this, this making Scripture absolutely central to our life and to our faith as it relates to food. Remember in the Scripture itself, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, it talks about how we are to long for the pure milk of the Word. Jesus said, you don't live on bread alone. You also live, you eat my words, the Word of God. And in Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about that it's also meat, solid food. So the metaphor itself, eating the Bible, and it's very striking. And it finds its origin in three passages of Scripture dealing with three people. The first one was Jeremiah, then Ezekiel, and then John in the book of Revelation. I want to read them to you. Just I'm not going to give much comment, but just so that you're aware the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, he says, your words were found. Remember, they discovered the word of God. It was hidden in all of the desolation after the exile and all that. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. 
he ate them. What a great imagery of eating. We're going to talk about this. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, he's, uh, he's talking and, and God speaks to him. He says, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house, i.e. God's people, Israel. Don't be like them. Open your mouth wide and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, an old scroll, not like this, but you know, a scroll was there, and it had writing on the front and the back. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me his scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll, and I will give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was my mouth, in, in my mouth as sweet as honey. God speaking to the prophet. And then John, in the book of Revelation, he wrote the Gospel of John, and also we studied Revelation. He's on the Isle of Patmos, and he has these great visions of and then he hears in verse 10, he's standing, he sees this massive angel, he's standing on one foot in the sea, one foot on land, and then he's holding this old book. And then a voice that I heard from heaven, God speaks, or Jesus speaks to him, he says, saying, go take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea of the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me that little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it'll be sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. Why was it bitter? Any preacher knows this. You know, you ingest the Word of God, and then that agonizing grind where you got to come and confront people who say they follow God and they're not. And it just causes turmoil inside. But friends, we come back to this, eating the Bible. Eat this book. Don't read the scripture. Eat this book. Like the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the apostle John, we embrace this metaphor. We eat this book called the Bible. We receive this revelation from God. And we're drawn into his kingdom life. We eat his word. We don't just read it. We ingest it. We metabolize it. We digest it. We allow it to feed and nourish and fuel us. We let it get inside, as uh, Peterson says, into our very nerve endings and our reflexes. We surrender to its influence in our mind, in our heart, our body, our soul, and spirit. And we let it to assimilate itself and shape our praying, our worship, our obedience, our service, our work in the world, our stewardship, and our witness. You see, as authentic believers throughout history have verified, they verified this in their lives, there's only one way for the Scripture to have its intended effect on us. Eat this. Receiving God's word and chewing on it and ingesting it into the fibers of our life and faith, being strengthened 
strengthened and encouraged and shaped and equipped and challenged to live in God's kingdom. So to receive God's word into our beings with faith and to surrender with Christ, we read it with our whole life, not just the synapses of our brains. It's participatory reading. And the Holy Spirit takes us as we're unhurried with it and make it a part of who we are. Does that make sense to you? Friends, our culture, one famous writer said it this way, we have generation who listens with their eyes and thinks with their feelings. And they're in trouble. But the generation in front of them one or two, while we may not be characterized like that, we might as well have been because so many of us neglect the Word of God at our peril. I'm, as you can tell, I'm a little hyped and amped about this. Massive study done in the United States and Canada. The study was called Reveal. And they looked at every single thing about Christianity and growing, becoming like Christ, the whole growing in faith, peace, all of that stuff. And there was one characteristic that stood out two to three times more than anything else, more than worship, more than prayer, more than anything that had the intended result. Guess what it was? Eat this. There is no single spiritual practice if done intently, consistently, and reading with your life in surrender to it. Sometimes I take my Bible and I put it over my head and I say, God, I sit under your word today. In my quiet time, so often since the printing press where you sit under the word as it was read and taught, now we sit over it as authority fueling the false self, the new text. And if it happens to line up with us, Al, we'll take it. If it doesn't, we discard it. No, we sit under, we sit under this book, the Word of God. So, let's get practical or run out of time. How do we respond to God in eating the Bible? Well, I'm just going to be really intensely practical and uh, challenge us. First, we read through. We read through with our eyes. We, this is a broad picture, learning its content. We need some content. We have to have some understanding or knowledge, but it must move beyond mere reading. Ken Shigematsu, a friend of mine who's a pastor and an author out in Vancouver, he says this, one of the dangers of being contemporary followers of Jesus is the habit of passively storing information from the Scriptures without acting on it. We gorge ourselves on the Scripture, filling our minds with information but never living it out. We become spiritually sluggish, and in some cases, we even grow immune to the conviction of the Word of God. We hear it in our minds, but never change the way we live. You know what James calls this? He calls it hearing without doing. 
And he says, people who do that, who call themselves Christians, who hear the word continually, you know, but don't put it into practice, they're deceiving, deceiving themselves. We deceive ourselves that we're actually growing, becoming like Jesus, and maybe even living in the kingdom of God. We study it over with our minds. We study. We not just read it, we study over we learn its truth. We understand its concepts. We make correlations. It was funny, in my quiet time this week, I was just finished uh, the beginning of last week, sorry. I just finished going through devotionally First and Second Peter. And it struck me how many times he talks about the end, the last days, you know, all of this. And so I began to, I just was making notes. I was writing in my Bible and I went down and I, I put together an entire thing about, wow, I didn't think, when I think about the end times, I think of books like maybe Revelation or Thessalonians, Matthew 24 and 5, 1 Peter, it was just like 19 times he makes reference to the end. See, you've got to study it. You've got to get a handle on it. What is it teaching us? Then we meditate on. We meditate on with our spirit. We dwell on it, think it through, chew on it. We rest in, immerse ourselves in it. One author talks about meditating on the scriptures. Again, here's what's different from Eastern meditation. Meditation in Christian circles is not to empty your mind. Every single reference to meditate in the Bible says meditate on. You take something of the God or something of the Word of God and you dwell on it. You think about it. You meditate on it. One talk, it's kind of like uh, you ruminate over it like a cow that chews its cud. Sorry, I grew up out west. Uh, if anyone, you know, farming communities, cattle, will you see them eating all the time. What they do is they have four stomachs. Do you know that? A cow has four stomachs. And so he... Food goes into all four, and what it does is he can regurgitate up. After he's walked around, he's got all this food, and he can bring it back up, and he can chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it. Get all the nourishment out of it. That's sort of like, uh, you know, what meditating on Scripture does. One writer talked about visualizing with our imagination in this whole idea of meditating. And before you think he's getting weird, this is just... It's just a beautiful thing where he suggests the reading of the scripture a few times and then, so you're familiar with the story and then think about, put yourself in it. Imagine. If you were to take a story from the gospels, for example, you know, remember Jesus that night at two in the morning, disciples are in a boat and they're going over and a storm hits. We read through that, but why don't you just stop? What's it like, first of all, to be up at two in the morning? Some of you don't even know. Imagine the temperature's different. How cold is it? What do you feel like? The storm, what are the waves doing? How's it feeling? Is there dark? Can you see, can you see the moon or the stars? No. What's it like being in a boat that's just getting hammered where there's, where, you know, fishermen? And what did happen when you see this sort of figure suddenly coming, walking on water towards you? See, do you ever imagine that? Put yourself in it. 
Imagine it. Be there. And he, you know, Ignatius of Loyola, founder of the Jesuits, said that reading scripture passage like this becomes, make, make it become familiar and then imagine. Close your eyes and visualize the setting. And then he invites us to use our senses of sight, hearing, touch, smell, and taste to imagine ourselves in the story. And it becomes more real and alive to us. What's it like when Jesus looks at you and then speaks? Like, think about it. We, um, we memorize in. Here we memorize things in our heart. The Psalm 119 says, your word I've hidden in my heart. That's the one challenge. I'm just going to tell you, friends. It's just the one challenge of, you know, electronic devices in the Bible. You can access them. But what happens when the internet's down or something doesn't work or your phone's out of battery? hide the word in your heart, become so familiar with it, often memorizing it, you're stalking yourselves for when you need it, you can, the spirit can go in there and pull something out and he can speak to you. Listen, listen for. We respond, we read through, we study over, we meditate on, we memorize in, we, we listen for. This is with, we're listening with our spirit for the voice of God. Uh, a practical practice, I don't know if any of you are familiar with what's called Lectio Div the Divina. It's a way to study or think and meditate upon Scripture and listening. And uh, often you hear the Spirit, he begins as you whisper and murmur and think about and, and let the Spirit guide you. It naturally leads you into prayer about what you're reading and in connecting with your life and it's powerful. Uh, and I'll just quickly finish with this. Align with our life. You've got to align your life with it. This means to bring our life in alignment with God's word, in obedience and application, in our character, in our thinking, in our uh, affections and values, in our actions. You see, Jesus said this, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You're not terribly blessed if you just know it. It's in the doing where the richness of the blessing of God and his word comes into play. Friends, how do you eat the scripture? Here's some good ideas. Maybe you've got better ones or you could say it differently. But we eat the scripture. We read through it, study over it, meditate on it, memorize it inside. We listen for the spirit. We align our lives with it. And this means eating this book. And when we do this, our lives will be changed and it will bless us in kingdom living. No question. Does that make sense? Old Alliance uh, writer, author, in fact, Summit as a church is actually related because he used to be the pastor of Avenue Road downtown Toronto, which became Bayview Glen Church, which started, you know, we started from there. And this pastor, A.W. Tozer, wrote this in his book, The Pursuit of God. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bringing men and women to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that they may enter into him, that they may know, they may delight in his presence, that they may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself is the core and center of their hearts. Friends, this is the word. 
that we follow. So Summit, let's eat this book. Eat this book. Tell the person next to you, eat this book. Don't read it like a blog. Don't read it like a Twitter thing. Eat this book. Get into your word of God and it'll lead you to a God-blessed life in the kingdom. Amen.